Hi, everyone. This is Ben Guest, and this is Ben Bo's podcast. My guest today is Ethan Brooks. Ethan is a senior analyst at The Hustle. One of his areas of focus are, is paid newsletters. In this conversation, we talk about lessons Ethan learned from James Altisher from Same Par, Ethan's insight into the timeless principles behind newsletters, behind copywriting, behind communication. We also talk about The Princess Bride. Enjoy. Ethan, thanks for coming on. Okay, first question, senior year of high school, what music were you bumping? Oh, this is gonna be embarrassing. Yeah, so actually not embarrassed, I'm not embarrassed. Everybody who knows me will be embarrassed, but I, I have very eclectic taste. So, and it was literally everything, but um, I will say I was on the sea shanty trend like a long time before anybody else was. <laughs> so pretty, yeah, pretty eclectic taste. Senior year of high school, it would have been a lot of like hair metal and uh, some hip hop. I, I'll be honest about this. I'm not a huge fan of like the most recent hip hop and rap. I just, it's never really, it's never really grabbed me for whatever reason, but I like the old stuff, man. And uh, so, yeah, a lot of hair metal, a lot of old school hip hop. So specifics, um, what bands, what songs? Oh God, Leonard Skinnerd, uh, Def Leppard, um, Motley Crue, like all the, basically everything that you could find on the classic rock station I was into. Uh, it's gonna sound weird because if anybody knows me, I'm just like a little white kid, but like, I love Tupac. I actually think he's brilliant as a writer and as like a, as a rapper. Um, and then, yeah, like the, oh man, I'm gonna blank on like High Kings is a great Irish ballad band, so. If you guys are interested in some of that, <laughs> I can't, I don't know. I listen to pretty much anything. I'm pretty easy to get along with. If you're running the radio in the car, I'm pretty happy as long as we got just something going. It's funny. So um, middle school for me was when Def Leppard was big, pour some sugar on me and Armageddon and so forth. So one, it's just funny when you were like, yeah, when I listen to the classic rock station, it's like, <laughs> oof getting old but then two so one of their biggest songs of course is armageddon it and and that was back when mtv was huge and the video was on all the time and come home from middle school watch it and i misunderstood this is before closed captioning and everything subtitles i misunderstood the lyrics and i thought they were saying are you getting it like are you understand are you getting it i'm getting it are you getting it oh. <laughs> so for like two years <laughs> i thought that was the name of the that was the chorus <laughs> or whatever um, it, it is funny. I know what you're talking about too. Cause it's now, uh, by the way, actually today is my birthday. So I literally just turned 31 and now oh, happy I'm birthday. kind of age. Thank you. I'm kind of aging into that next generation where now all the stuff that I grew up on is considered classic rock, which just sounds weird, man. Like people are talking about how, um, I don't know, smash mouth is like classic rock. And I'm like, no, it's not. No, you're wrong. But hey, you know, Shrek came out 20 some odd years ago. So wow. Wow. So if you're 31, I'm just doing math. So like when you like Lord of the Rings must have been huge. That, that would have been like when you were in middle school, right? Or close. Oh, to yeah. It. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 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 Um, but again, I, you know, I was uh, sort of raised on like, I mean, I had cool parents and stuff. So I was raised on all the stuff from like pre 90s culture. Uh, mm. So, like, my favorite movie growing up was uh, Princess Bride. I probably, I could quote that movie all the way through multiple, like, backwards and forwards. Inconceivable. I, that's my favorite. Ne never um, get involved in a land war in Asia. <laughs> Only slightly less well known <laughs> is this. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, major nerd. <laughs> you can oh, see why I love I that movie. As a writer, though. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's a great one. What do you think? So you, I mean, you would have already been like, kind of, I, I don't know how old you are, but I'm curious. What was it like when it first came out? Because what I heard is that that movie was a little bit of a sleeper and it only kind of became big retroactively. Yeah, you so seem I'm, like a fan. Would you uh, say that this is 100%. So, so I'm 46. I was born 75. I think the movie came out 87. So I've been 12. And I grew up in Vermont. So this is Burlington, Vermont. And of course, you know, for the millennials listening, this is the dark ages, no internet and no social media at all. So it was literally 
word of mouth. You know, now when people say word of mouth, they mean, you know, you shared a tweet or something. But it was, it was um, a babysitter of mine growing up, her boyfriend, they had gone to see The Princess Bride and her boyfriend's like, it's great. You guys have to see it. Go see it. And so that's how we heard about it. I'm sure we saw it as a family and my mom, my dad, my sister. And of course, it's the kind of movie that's timeless. It exists out of time in terms of the story, but it's just timeless in that any generation is going to be hooked. I was, you were. And it's just a, it's so engaging. It's just a combination of sweet, funny, advent. I mean, it's got everything you want, right? Like, and there's Romance, always something more coming. Sword fighting, giants. Yeah. yeah. And this is a kissing um, Robin Wright, so beautiful. Uh, the actor that played Wesley, so handsome. I mean, it's just it's just a phenomenal story. Um, I don't know how much of a fan of William Goldman you are. He's the guy who wrote it, and he wrote the book that it was based on. You know, I have I have seen some of his stuff over the over the years, just because of like being curious about whether or not the book came before the movie. Mm-hmm. And I've seen some of his like email letters and stuff. He's a really interesting copywriter. That's what, uh, that's I, what I was, that's the connection I was making. Oh, really? Yeah. Cause he's a, he's a phenomenal writer, screenwriter, novelist, but he's, he also gets the copy editing marketing world. And so, you know, his stuff is very much one sentence leads to the next, draw you in, draw you in, draw you in. So he wrote a couple of great books about the business of Hollywood, uh, including a classic called, um, I think it's called no one knows anything. Like that's the only truism in Hollywood. No one knows anything. <laughs> And uh, there's a lot of good stuff in it that, that, that is not just about Hollywood, but is about, um, about connecting with people and, and how you do that. That's fascinating. I didn't realize that, but I'll have to check it out. Yeah. No, William Goldman. Yeah, William Goldman. He's, he wrote um, some of the classic films of yesteryear. He wrote Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, wrote The Princess Bride, wrote All the President's Men, wrote Misery. Just a phenomenal writer. But, you know, probably the most wow. successful screenwriter you know, up until, I don't know, Quentin Tarantino or somebody. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I, uh, do you think, who do you think is like the William Goldman of today? I mean, you mentioned Tarantino, but like, are, yeah, but, are we but, in a, but, but Goldman never directed or maybe he directed one film. That's a great question. Who's the William Goldman of today? You know, the guys that wrote the Avengers, the last two Avengers movies and the Captain America movies, those guys, I think, I think they're Marcus McFeely. They kind of remind me a little bit of of just, you know, there's going to be a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff going on, and every scene's going to going to propel you into the next scene. Hmm. Um, who's your favorite? Uh, who's your favorite character in Princess Bride? Oh God, probably Miracle Max, man. <laughs> <laughs> Billy Crystal's character, <laughs> just mostly, mostly dead. dead. <laughs> 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 Woo, Who knows everything? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's hard. Yeah, that's a tough one, man. I love that whole movie. It's like that the whole movie's like a friend that I grew up with, you know. So yeah. but if I have to pick one to hang out, and it's funny, the reason why is because Miracle Max actually reminds me a lot of like my grandfather, um, who is still around and still just as cantankerous as Miracle Max was. But I, I see a lot of him in that character and it's just kind of funny. So yeah, that's definitely uh that was definitely a favorite growing up. And what else? I don't know. You know, I've always felt a little bit surprised that I work in like tech as a writer because I was never particularly engaged with technology. And for as much as I listen to like different music and stuff, I'm not particularly in the know on pop culture at all, even growing up. So uh, it's funny when <clears throat> when Steph, Steph's the one who originally recruited me for this role at Trends. Uh, we had worked together at our last startup, our last company, and she got in touch and she said, you know, hey, there's this role that's opening up. She knew that I was interested in being a writer. And she said, you know, you basically like, you know, you look around and try to surface ideas for businesses before, like before they're popular. And my first thought was, there's no way that I'm qualified for that. I'm like the last person to know anything, (laughs) you know, Uh, but it's been it's been pretty interesting the last year or so I think I'm just about coming up on a year here to see first of all 
that I actually did have some pretty strong instincts in that area, which is, you know, that's not the two my heart. I, I say that only because if there's anybody else out there who thinks like they don't really know much about this, you might be wrong. I, I was surprised to find that I was wrong, uh, but also that it is a learnable skill as well. And it's not just useful for entrepreneurs, it's useful for writers and um, basically anybody who's trying to tap into like the collective interest of what's going on in society. I've been surprised to just like to what extent that's actually a learnable skill so far. That's fascinating to hear you say that because I think unconsciously or, or certainly not knowing that you were going to say that, one of the things that I've appreciated about your posts on Twitter, and you have a great um, Twitter feed. What's what's your handle? It's uh, damn Ethan, damn underscore Ethan. <laughs> damn underscore Ethan. So everybody, yeah. uh, I encourage you to, to follow Ethan at damn underscore Ethan. But what I like about it is, for the most part, you get to the underlying principles um, behind something. And the principles are things that are much more timeless, of course. So, and you've touched on this in, in your content. Sometimes people want to know, you know, what platform do I need to use for my newsletter or what email service should I, you know, it's very specific technical questions or, or things that I can give you the answer for what I think today, but five years from now, it's going to be totally different. And so a lot of what you get at it is not what's the thing today you should be doing or what's the trend, quote unquote, you should be following today, but what are the more underlying principles behind this? Well, uh, thank you for saying that, first of all. Uh, I'm glad to hear that that comes through and that it's actually helpful because sometimes I feel <laughs> a little out of touch just because I don't, I, I actually don't care about like the most buzzworthy things personally. That's my personal thing. And I also think it's a little bit of a distraction. Um, but there's a lot of people that do care about it. It's not necessarily a popular opinion in this industry. So it's, it's nice to hear that it is noticed and helpful. Um, I think a lot about, there's a guy, I think this came from a professor. Last, his last name was Knuth, K-N-U-T-H. I think his first name might have been Charles. Am I getting that right? There's like a, a computer, he's a professor of computer science somewhere. Uh, he came across my radar a few years ago because he's got a, he's, he's a really interesting guy because he's a professor of computer science that does not have an email account. Or he has an email, but he doesn't check it. In fact, he's got this great blog post where he writes about how email is a great tool for staying on top of things. But his job as a professor is to get to the bottom of things. And I, I'll never forget that. I love that, the way, that way of saying it. Uh, and I think what probably hooked me on this role was seeing that it wasn't really about being on top of things either. It was kind of about getting to the bottom of, you know, what's really, what's really important. There's a lot that you're going to hear about in the news. There's a lot you're going to see on Amazon or TikTok. Like there's always new things trending, but what's, what's the signal from the noise? And so <clears throat> I do try to focus on principles that people can take with them for exactly the reason that you said, because so much of this is going to change, like the technology changes daily. In fact, funny enough, you mentioned the newsletter thread. So um, starting in September or so, uh, I was basically tasked with uh, studying multi-million dollar newsletters full-time. So we were writing the guide on how to start, grow, uh, and like yeah, I guess start and grow a multi-million dollar newsletter. And right around January, February, we were going through some pretty extensive edits and like we were, we were close to shipping and then it got pushed back and we were close to shipping and it got pushed back. And as this is happening, there's so much news coming out about the newsletter world. I'm like, look, at some point we're going to have to hit publish because I, I have to, I'm like rewriting chapters every single day just because of how fast it's changing. Um, so when I can, I do try to stay away from things that are super timely and focus on the more timeless aspects. And, you know, in publishing, and this is something that other people will say too, when it comes to publishing, the newsletter phenomenon is, is interesting and it, it's timely, uh, but the business model is timeless. It's a media company. 
you know, and I think newsletters are getting a lot of press right now. But if you know how a media company works, then the, the, the medium that you use matters less because the, the strategy for making money and for building a successful company and growing it is actually mostly the same, whether it's a blog or a newsletter or monetized tweets or an OnlyFans account or whatever it is, they all kind of work the same way. Okay, so that's love everything that you just said, agree completely. So now flashing in neon lights is how does a media company work? Yeah, sure. So um, this was a really important question that we wanted to develop like a super concrete answer to. Uh, so, you know, we talked to a whole bunch of people across the industry. Obviously, the writers are like, I interviewed across the team at The Hustle. So that was the media company that I worked for. Um, also interviewed a bunch of people at like Morning Brew and Axios and Mark, uh, Digital Marketer and WAPO, like all these BuzzFeed, all these other companies. And then we tried to boil it down to what's common across all of them. And... Um, I'll say two things. So the foundation of any successful media company, this cannot be skipped, is a great product, first and foremost. And it sounds like a little bit of an easy way out. I'm going to give you the other answer in a second. But if you ask anybody who has helped grow a successful company in the media space, like what, what is the key to growing it? They're going to tell you if they, if if they actually know what they're talking about, they're going to say, you need a good product first. Like it's got to be something people want to read or want to partake in. Uh, without that, everything else is harder. And you can never grow your way out of a product problem. With it, everything's easier. So let's assume somebody has a good product, right? And by the way, great product just means that it's something that's like true to you and unique in its own way, helpful. You actually write well about this in terms of like picking a niche um, and how important that is. We can go deeper on that in a second. But if we assume that somebody has a quality product, then uh, the mechanics of actually making money in media are, are pretty straightforward. So there's basically three ways to make money from a media company. Uh, you have free subscriptions, which are monetized via ads or affiliate links. Then you have low cost subscriptions and high cost subscriptions. So free, low cost, high cost. Uh, the basic idea is that you start off with your free and because there's no barrier to entry there that becomes your largest audience. Um, you can monetize it via ads or affiliate deals or you can uh, then launch a paid version which is a little bit more specific. So if you're free uh, to use the hustle as an example, our free newsletter is a business email, but it's pretty broad. Like you can find stuff in there from just about anywhere in the business field from day to day. Trends, which is our low cost paid subscription is one step more specific. It's sort of like, this is where you're gonna get business ideas delivered to your inbox, you know? Um, so your free newsletter helps sell your low cost subscription and then your low cost subscription eventually helps sell your high cost subscription. And in that way, what you're doing is you're drawing readers deeper and deeper into the ecosystem of your company. And there's a couple important reasons for that. One, uh, well, I mean, you develop like a much stronger relationship with your audience, which is crucial, but it also grows the lifetime value of those readers which affects how much you can pay in order to obtain them um, and in order to like delight them, which is huge. The other advantage of building in this way, like free plus paid subscriptions is that you diversify your income, which helps to protect you across different movements in the market. Like if you look at this time last year, online advertising had plunged and a lot of companies really struggled with it um, if they didn't have some kind of paid subscription helping to offset that. So sort of a long answer, but you have your free media, 
which helps to sell your paid subscriptions. And then uh, that cycle protects you from downturns in the market. So if we're comparing this, say, to media 30, 40 years ago, let's say 30 years ago, 1990, 1991, if, if we're talking television stations, NBC, you know, watching ER on Thursday night is like free, the free newsletter with affiliate ads. And then watching ESPN, which was on basic cable for which you pay a, a, a fee, is like low cost newsletter. And then something like HBO, which is a premium subscription is your high cost newsletter. Yeah, that's a that's a great analogy. And um, without knowing, I mean, I, I don't know if the same owner was behind all of those, but yes, that's the idea. Right, uh, right. That's exactly the idea. The big difference between like a low cost, so low cost subscriptions are what we call them front end products. And then uh, high cost are called back end products. So your free sells your front end, your front end sells your back end. And uh, the main differences between them, there's two, is the specificity. So typically a backend product will be much, much nicher than a front-end product uh, and price. So uh, because the backend product is much more specific, you typically won't expect to have as big of an audience there as you would even for your front-end. Um, and so the price is much higher. I mean, there's a cost to operating those things and uh, very often you'll see the price go up. So uh, the guy who was actually super helpful in outlining how this worked was uh, James Altucher. Uh, sat down with him and his newsletter, I don't have a number in front of me, but I believe it brought in something like $20 million back in 2019. He's a, he runs a very successful media operation. And uh, if you look at how it breaks down, this is exactly what he does. So he's got a handful. I know he's got at least one free newsletter. And then there are a handful of front end newsletters that all range in like the hundred ish dollars a year. And that's pretty standard for a front end, uh, at least in the newsletter space, you'll see it's typically somewhere from like five to 10 bucks a month. Uh, pretty easy to say yes to and it's a low enough cost to entry that you're not really pricing a lot of people out at that point point. and if you look at his back-end products they're niche um, investment advice products and so they're catered to somebody with a very specific kind of investing mentality they're much more expensive, several thousand dollars a year. And this is really important. One of the reasons they're as expensive as they are is because, because it's investment advice, you can't have everybody doing it or it won't work, right? So in, in some way he's pricing it because the group is gonna be smaller, but also in order to keep the group smaller. So he's that's, a really interesting case study. That's fascinating. That's a fascinating insight. So with AltaShirt, do, do each level of those newsletters, um, is he actively marketing or recruiting people for the next level? Yep, yep. And so he's actually, at least last time I checked, he, uh, he currently operates under the umbrella of a company called Agora, which is this financial media company. And this actually ties perfectly into that earlier statement, which is that you know newsletters are really just media companies. Um, Agora, it, Agora has dozens of newsletters. They all operate in roughly the same way, which is that you have some kind of sort of well-known influencer. They're running a free newsletter on their website. Uh, you sign up for that free newsletter. And I believe he has a little bit of help writing it. Um, I know a lot of it, a lot of the free newsletters still his voice week to week, but there's some, I think there's some in there that's uh, to get some help with. If you read it though, there's a couple of ads in the free newsletter and they are all for other Agora products. So everyone inside the Agora sphere is helping to sell other Agora products. That's your affiliate marketing, right? Um, I'm not a subscriber to his paid newsletters, but I would, I mean, he's the one who taught me this. So I would assume <laughs> uh, once you step up into the paid newsletter tier, it, it they're basically working to try and get you into the more expensive 
tiers as well. And uh, another interesting thing that he said about this was he's like, you know, at a certain point, I'm paraphrasing here, but he says, like one of the other really important reasons to develop paid subscriptions is because your cost, your readers will want it at some point. Like they want, if, you, if you're putting out a really great newsletter and it's free, people will love it. But at some point they're like, what can I do to help? Like, what can I do to just, I just want, like, you're cool. I want to support this. I want to do something to be a part of this. What can I do? And if you're just like, well, just keep opening the newsletter. It's not very fulfilling. So at some point, and this was kind of surprising for me to hear, but it makes sense. It's like, you create these paid subscriptions because they're useful, because they're helpful, uh, but also because like people want a way to interact with you as a creator on another level if they really like what you're doing. And I think he does a good job of that. That's fascinating. And Alta sure is somebody who's incredibly interesting. What other lessons did you take away from your talks with him? Yeah, yeah, uh, great question. So uh, I'm actually glad you asked about this because there's a lot that he and I talked about that didn't make it into some of the stuff that I published publicly. Um, just because our conversation was really wide ranging. We talked about a whole bunch of stuff. But what um, I like James, he's like a controversial guy, you know? I mean, like literally, I think last summer he just got in like this big public dispute with Jerry Seinfeld. And, you know, he's he's taken some heat for the things that he believes, which I think anybody in the media game had better be prepared to do these days. You know, like if you think you're going to get through this unscathed, uh, you're dreaming and if you can it's because you're not saying anything very interesting and i think he has a really healthy um philosophy on that that maybe isn't obvious from the outside but when i got to sit down and chat with him it definitely came through you said things like you know if you're going to succeed in media it's because you're going to say things that are interesting and thought-provoking and if you're going to say things that are interesting and thought-provoking someone's going to hate it you know um and uh, he gave me a really great framework for thinking about that because I think I mentioned this before we recorded, but I grew up moving all over the place. So I'm pretty good at getting along with everybody. I'm not great at conflict. Like I don't, I don't want to ruffle feathers. I like getting along with people. And so when I was first getting into this, I was like, yeah, this is probably the toughest thing for me. It's just this idea of how do you deal with it? the negative backlash or haters or something like that. And he said, well, it's tough. He said, I'll share two things that he said. The first thing he said was, yeah, it's, I mean, it's just tough. Sometimes people just get through your armor and it, it bothers you and that's gotta be okay. Um, but he said, think about, think about an alarm, like a 24 hour clock. If you don't respond to haters, they will basically lose interest and move on to something else in about 24 hours. So every time you reply, you reset the clock. And I thought to myself, that's so interesting. That's so interesting, you know, because I, I think I could easily get caught up in a case of trying to convince somebody to come around or, you know, let them see my side of things or something like that. And basically it's just not worth it. I mean, on the, the, like constructive criticism is, is helpful, but the internet is a brawl sometimes. And you just got to know when you're in a situation when that you're just better off letting that 24 hour clock run out. So that was really helpful. The other thing that he mentioned, which I thought was helpful, and this is true, this, I think this is important for anybody who builds a big list. Um, once your list gets, you know, into like the tens or even hundreds of thousands of people, you're like you're talking to so many people that the typical rate at which things happen means large groups of people are taking action so let me let me let me clarify this like if 0.1% of people unsubscribe that's not a big deal if you have a thousand subscribers right that's one person but when you have a million you know now you're talking about hundreds, 
I can't do the math this fast, but I think it's hundreds of people who are now unsubscribing on a daily basis. Might even be thousands, whatever 0.1% of a million is. Um, it's a large number of people. So every time you hit send, regardless of how hard you're trying to do your job well, you're going to get dozens of people at the least who are basically saying, I don't want to hear from you anymore. Now, that's not always your fault, right? A lot of times they're just having a bad day. They have like one too many emails in their inbox and it's just like mass unsubscribe time. You know, I've, I'm sure we've all done this. Um, but his, uh, the other thing that he said, you know, related to kind of dealing with the emotional side of this was just wait, because what, what he started to notice over time was you send the email, you see all the unsubscribes come through. And then a day or two later, your list is bigger than it was before. And it's because people who didn't unsubscribe shared the email around and other people started to sign up. So those two keys to kind of dealing with the emotional side of this game, I thought were really helpful. Love it. Can you give us one more lesson you learned from James? Oh my God. If I had my notes from that talk in front of me, I'm sure there's a lot. Um, what do you want me to come back to it? Yeah, why don't we come back to it? I'll pull my notes up from that talk and I'll, I'll see if I can pull something out that uh, hasn't made it into the tweets. I, I'll, I'll just say one more time though that, oh, I guess this isn't really a lesson, but, and maybe it's going to be controversial, but um, like I said in the beginning, like James is a controversial dude. You know, people have different opinions of him. The, I'll say this. I got a I got a very clear impression talking to him that he like genuinely cares what people think about him. I don't think it stops him from doing things, you know. But I think sometimes he gets painted as a guy who just doesn't give a shit. And that was not the impression that I got. Like I I I and for me it was kind of helpful as somebody who also is like an empath and I care what people think. It was helpful to see that um, you can like you can be successful in media. You're probably going to be maligned at some point. That's just kind of the reality of the world that we live in at at, at this stage. But um, my one-on-one -on -one encounter with him was like very positive. Is he's a good guy? That's interesting good. dude, dude. Yeah, go learn from him. Yeah, for sure. Well, this is interesting. I mean, let, let's stay on this theme of learning um, from other people. So now you're working with or working for Sam Parr. What are some lessons that you've learned from him, if you don't mind sharing? Oh, man. Yeah, I'd love to. So Sam's an interesting guy. Uh, I've learned a ton, not just from him, but I mean, he's built a great company. It's attracted a lot of really interesting people. So uh, I joke all the time, probably on the record saying this somewhere else. I'm like, I keep waiting for the the day he shows up at my door asking for his money back because he found out this isn't a real job. Like, it's just a blast. I love, I love what I do. Um, what did I learn from Sam? So I think there are probably like two or three things that stand out the most. And uh, this is, like, these are, these are like high level things. Tactically, I don't even think I could begin to go into all the things I learned just because it is so much. Sam's affected my copywriting. He's affected like the way that I do like image, like, the images that are attached to articles. He's got really interesting thoughts on how to use those to grab attention and tell stories and stuff like that. So I've just probably learned a ton through osmosis that um, I'm not actively aware of, but on the higher level, there are some things that I'm keenly aware of. So uh, one is Sam moves incredibly fast with ideas and that is refreshing sometimes it's like i'm probably pretty obvious i'm like a thinker i like to think things over and i can get in my own way with that sometimes and i think probably a lot of us can uh what do they call it analysis paralysis sam's also very thoughtful but he's very quick to move and i was just talking to him about this the other day uh because uh, he's now working with a friend on their investment fund. And he, I mean, he basically said like, this other guy moves super fast, you know? He's kind of learning some lessons from him on that. So um, 
and I was talking to him about this concept of moving fast. And I'm like, yeah, does he, are you worried at all? And he says, no, like the way he kind of thinks about this is, is the decision reversible? If it is, how much damage is going to be done or how much effort is going to go into reversing it? If it's negligible, just make the decision and be done with it. Like move on to the next thing. And what I think I've learned just being around everybody here is that a lot of decisions are much more like the, the potential downside is much smaller than you think it is. Um, that's, yeah, that's, that's one of the big ones. Uh, the other big one, I just wrote about this a couple of weeks ago too, is like, he's kind of a troublemaker. And it's like, it's, Sam's got this like, uh, I call it like a coyote trickster approach to marketing. And I'm not sure how much you keep up on what he did, but like, he does things all the time. You know, there was this, tweet thread that he released recently right now he's focused on growing the podcast so he, he released this thing on twitter it was like a snapshot of uh the podcast page on apple podcasts and he goes this is crazy you know um apple just released this new feature it's this crazy thing that happens as soon as you subscribe to a podcast seriously craziest thing i've ever seen in my life this button here click it see what happens and uh like you, if you know Sam, you're, you're sitting there going like, this is bullshit. There's nothing, nothing's going to happen. But then you also like have to click just to be sure. And it's that kind of, I don't know, it's like a playful sort of approach to growing that is, I'm learning a lot from that personally. I think other people, I mean, I, I wrote about it because I think other people can learn from it too, but we did the same thing um, on Black Friday. So Black Friday, we had a sale for trends that was designed to look like a leaked internal email. And then, you know, like immediately this, the email goes out and then Sam sends some kind of follow-up. It's like, oh my God, I just leaked an email to a million people. And it's just, it's, it's, I don't think there's a lot of business owners these days that are ha like having that kind of fun in public, you know? A lot of people just take themselves really seriously. So that's been refreshing, I think. Yeah, I love that idea of injecting playfulness into what whatever it is you're doing. Yeah, yeah, it's playfulness, and then I, you know, I, like I said, I interviewed him about this, and it's uh, it's showmanship too, to a point. And I think that's something that has kind of gone away. Uh, in why why has it gone away? I don't know exactly why it may have disappeared. Maybe it's because it's easier to grow now than it ever was before. And like, you don't necessarily need a carnival barker out there doing a good job promoting you in order to get eyeballs. But if you look back at people like Goldman and Sugarman and uh, Ogilvy and like the old copywriters who used to, like, they couldn't tell exactly what you were looking at. They had to hook your attention and get you to write a letter, and like put a check on an envelope. Like, they just had to, they had to get you over so many more obstacles. And so they're, they were masters of making you interested in something. And <clears throat> a lot of that showmanship has disappeared. It's the kind of thing that you don't even realize is missing maybe until you see it. Uh, but I think a lot of business owners would be like really smart to, to, to embrace it, you know? That's fascinating. So what, so with those old school copy writers, what are the timeless principles? What are the tactics they're using, as you said, to draw you in and you have to take much more significant steps to complete the, the transaction? Yeah, sure. So I'll, I'll say, and you should probably interview Sam about this because he's the actual master, but I'll, I'll give you, the, I'll give you the, um, the, the broad strokes from our conversation. So at the end of the day, showmanship is making people excited to do something right making them excited and they actually want to go do something and actually it's funny how rare that is when you put it that way like sure i've signed up for new subscriptions or you know new SaaS products or whatever but it's hard to remember the last time i was like really excited and i was you know, telling people like oh i'm gonna go do this so showmanship is the art of getting people excited about something. And one of the examples that he gave, which is really great, is um, like, let's say I'm selling you a watch. This is actually something that Timex did back in the day. They talked about the quartz crystals in their watches. And um, give me one second, I'll just pull it up. 
because the way that they talk about it is great. Here, I'm just going to pull it up right now. Okay. So what makes quartz so special? Quartz is a mineral with unique properties. When it's used in, electronic, in an electronic circuit, it'll oscillate at a constant rate. The stable quality of oscillation is what makes quartz so special. And they go on and on and on. But basically, they're using this technology, which was pretty common in watches at that time. But they're zeroing in on <clears throat> something and showing you why it's special. And, and the fact that they're making it special makes you excited to like own this thing, even though it's common. It's like saying, you know, this watch has hands on it. All watches have hands on it. But like, let me show you why this is where the craftsmanship is and, and, and why this is special. So I think if you were to really break down, and again, this would be a fascinating conversation to have with him, but I think one of the big things that the copywriters did really well was elevate the seemingly mundane. And actually, it's an interesting question because I think this is something that great newsletter writers do well and great writers in general do well. Like one of my favorite writers is a guy named Bill Bryson. And he's written a whole bunch of books about everything from like, he's got one on you know the history of the world and one on Australia and one on the Appalachian Trail. And he's got all these different books. He could basically write about anything and make it interesting. Like he's literally written about dirt in the history of the universe. Um, and I, it's because he looks closer at things and like finds what's interesting about them. Like there's a, a chapter of his, he's got this book called At Home. Stop me if I'm rambling too, because now that we're talking writing, I could just keep going. But he's got a book called At Home, which is all about the history of the world through the house. So he went into every room of the house and basically said, you know, there's a reason, like there's a reason your fork has four tines on it. There's a reason we have salt and pepper on the table and not other spices like that. There's a whole huge history behind the spice trade that resulted in that. There's a reason for everything that's in your home. And he's got this chapter on stairs and stairs are probably like the most boring thing you could ever think about, but it turns out it's like a fascinating history. It took a really long time to figure out how to make stairs. It wasn't just like, it's, it, it wasn't simple. There, there's, there's like, you know, the height has to be right. The pitch has to be right. All these different things. And he got there by just paying more attention than most people do. And this is something that we encourage new analysts to do at, uh, at Trends because that's, that's what we're trying to do too in the newsletter is find the thing that other people overlooked. We don't have access to different information than the rest of the world. Like what we do, I, again, just in case anybody's new to the newsletter here, it's like we find business opportunities that are emerging, but we don't, there's not some secret database of like important business opportunities. What we do is key in on things that most people gloss over and just dig like one layer deeper. If you can do that, you can do my job. And the way I tell people to think about it is, uh, do you remember speaking of like, 80s slash 90s movies. Remember Men in Black with Will Smith? Yeah, of course. All right. The, the uh, shooting range where uh, it's like 10 guys auditioning for the Men in Black. They're all given guns and they have to shoot and they shoot all these alien cardboard and then like Will Smith shoots, what was her name? Like Little Angela or something. The little, little girl standing in the street. And the trainer says, why why'd you shoot the little girl? And for anybody, I mean, everybody listening to this better have seen that movie, right? I, otherwise, it's past your bedtime if you haven't seen that movie. Um, but basically, he says, you know, I was going to shoot this alien, but like, it, you know, then I looked at it closer. It turns out he's just working out. And this guy over here is just sneezing. But this little girl, like little white girl in the middle of the ghetto, in the middle of the night, all by herself. And like, she's got these astrophysics books. She's up to something. She's about to start something. What all newsletter writers are doing is trying to find little Angela. Like that one thing that most people just look right past, that's what you're trying to key in on. Ah, that's so good. And just for the people listening, so I belong to this group, Trends Facebook group that has just a bunch of great people and information and great conversation. And, and Ethan works for them. And so I've had a couple of popular posts on there about starting a paid newsletter, starting a podcast, publishing on, on Kindle. So that's how we connected. Um, 
all of all of this is fascinating, Ethan. I'm just trying to think where to where to go next. You mentioned one thing I wanted to um, get more info on. You said Sam is great at at images attached to articles. Can you go into that? Yeah, sure. Um, so that's uh, that would be just one example of the highly tactical things that I've learned on the job uh, and gotten better at. Basically, like when you're in media, every single thing that you do is an opportunity to get attention. And, and that's all you're trying to do. Like this business thrives on attention. And, you know, hopefully you're a good person and you're doing it for the right reasons and you're getting like, you know, productive attention, but you're trying to get attention. Um, so, you know, like one thing that Sam sat a bunch of us down and talked to, talked to us about a couple of this about a year ago. So not long after I joined the team, it's just like ideas on how to make our article header images better. And, you know, without getting too, I guess I mean, it's kind of a visual thing, but I'll just describe some of the takeaways to people is like, I think it's very tempting if you create an article to go out and then find like a stock image that you think kind of represents it, right? But that's not what you want. Like it's, it's tempting to attach an image that makes sense and maybe even sort of sums up the article, right? Like if I'm gonna write about newsletters, maybe I'll go out and I'll get a picture of like newspapers on a table or something like that, right? It's a wasted opportunity if you do it that way. What you want to do is you want to go out and find an image that makes people go, huh? Like, what's that? You know? So um, what's an example from like, you know, I did this one thing on like uh, professional networking groups. And uh, it turns out Ben Franklin was actually one of the pioneers that like, you know, like, um, what do they call it? Like, uh, like business networking international, like all these business networking groups. So Ben Franklin was one of the first to really systematize that. He had this thing called the Junto, which was a group of local business owners that got together to discuss very specific things. Their meetings had structure and they had rules and very similar to all the business groups today. And so, you know, I think we ended up doing an image of like, you know, these two women who started a, a, like a really like successful networking group for female CEOs alongside Ben Franklin or something. And it's it's not a mystery, right? But it's just weird enough where you're like, well, what was that? You know, and you can kind of just grab people's attention. So the major takeaway is it's natural to want to use images to explain your article, but it's more productive to use one that's related but gets people curious. And that's the kind of thing again that I think like that's Something Sam is extremely good at is just getting people curious. So that that's the timeless principle, right? Or at least the longer lasting principle. Um, mm -hmm. Love it. Um, yeah, and I think we ran the article last week as like the title was uh, "Curiosity May Have Killed the Cat, but It'll Grow Your Business Like Crazy." <laughs> uh, can I ask you a question about your newsletter? Because as you mentioned, like that's. Yeah actually one of the ways that we came into contact and yeah so i'm fascinated obviously it's been a lot of time researching newsletters i always like to hear stories from other founders so um i'm i'm curious i think you mentioned that you you built a free newsletter right and then mm -hmm. did you yep. launch a second paid one or did you switch it to paid at a certain point yeah good great question so this all this whole world, right? Podcast, newsletter, self-publishing on, on Kindle, it's all new to me this year. Um, it's all sort of a result of uh, changes from the pandemic. Um, I was a university professor in, in Namibia in Southern Africa, and I, I resigned towards the end of last year because I wasn't comfortable with the COVID protocols. Uh, it didn't get ugly or anything, but just sort of admin and I disagreed and it was amicable and, and um, I resigned. And so this, this whole world is new to me, but it's, it's sort of like, and, and I wonder how other people feel this past year, the pandemic, um, you know, life sort of just shrunk, right, to maybe it's just your family and closest friends or a group you're, you're quarantining with or, or whatever it was. 
Um, and so I almost feel like I had all these creative outlets before the pandemic and then everything shrunk and then I didn't do anything for a while. And it was actually, um, coincidentally enough, I was listening to James Altisher's podcast and he was interviewing Sam Parr. No way, no way. And they were That's talking cool. about paid newsletters. And, and I think Sam, Sam or James, one of them said, the fastest way to a million is a paid newsletter. Um, and that, you know, that's a little bit of, um, uh, th th that's a little bit out there, but, but the, the underlying concept is, is um, really interesting. So I was driving around thinking about, well, what do I know that's of value that I could charge money for with a paid newsletter? And I go back to your point that you made about media companies in general. And I think this is a key insight. So I want to highlight it, that you have to have a great product. If you don't have a great product or a worthwhile product to your niche audience, nothing else matters. You know, you're, you're just putting lipstick on a, on a pig. Um, I was a big fan of Gordon Ramsay's show where he'd go into a restaurant that wasn't doing well and, you know, they would, they would change a bunch of things. And why I liked that show. So I used to work um, at the University of Mississippi and I, train, I helped train new teachers at the School of Education. And so a lot of that is feedback and, and you're working with people who are failing at something. Teaching is an incredibly complicated task and you know, you have to give them feedback. And what I liked about that show is part of it is how do you break through to somebody who's really resistant to feedback, which is what would usually happen because you go in and the chef or the owner was like, no, that's, I don't need to hear that. I don't need to hear that, but it's what they do need to hear. And when those turnarounds worked, it was because Gordon Ramsay was able to break through. But my point in bringing that up is nine times out of 10 and probably 99 times out of 100, really, the issue with why the restaurant wasn't doing well was because the food wasn't good. And if the food's not good, it doesn't matter how great your marketing is, your location, whatever it is, you haven't fixed the core issue, right? You haven't fixed your core product. So I just great. want to highlight that because I thought that was a great insight that you have to have a great product. So anyway, this burst of creativity kicks off. and. So I started a free newsletter that analyzed NBA games and offered predictions and picks for select games. And then concurrent with that, uh, I was doing a lot of writing and analysis. And then I started a podcast, um, all tied to that core product or that core idea. And I, got, I really got into all these things. And so I said, well, one, um, let's, let me split these, let me split off the newsletter. So let me do something just for predictions of NBA games, specifically spread bets um, for NBA games, selected picks, maybe just one pick a day or two picks or maybe zero picks. And, and those picks so far after about 140, 142 picks, I think, um, they're hitting at 59% which is Damn. elite, it's beyond elite. Um, so it's still early, but we'll, we'll see where that project goes. So that then became my paid newsletter. And in fact, I charge $120 a month for it. So incredibly high price point, but also obviously or potentially incredibly high value. Um, and that, I, I guess, in this world, in, the, in this little ecosystem of, of my little tiny media company, Benbo Media Company. Now, I mean, just uh, I'm, I'm joking because you, you mentioned about media companies early, earlier, but it, in a way, if you're publishing a newsletter, you're publishing Absolutely. a newspaper. You're, if you have a YouTube channel, you have a television channel, a uh, podcast, you have a, a radio show. So um, I split that off and I guess that's sort of my day job. And then I have a, uh, so the first newsletter, I just kept free and that's just all, all my other content, my podcasts, my writings, um, what, you know, whatever, whatever I'm interested in. And, and just as an aside, podcasting is great. And this conversation is a fantastic example of it because you can come into contact with somebody and almost just get a masterclass. Um, so, you know, the things that you've talked about in terms of copywriting, lessons that you learned from James Altucher or Sampar, you know, I, I may never meet those people my listeners may never meet those people, but they're learning lessons from those people right now through you. So uh, just as an aside, a, a podcast is a great way to sort of create your own curriculum and masterclass. 
Um, so anyway, so those, so split off. So now there's the Benbow Bets newsletter, which right now is at benbowbets.substack.com. But Substack takes 10% of your of your revenue. And then Stripe takes another three and a half, I think. So it's like already out of the gate, you're down to 86% of whatever people are paying. So I may move that um, sooner than later. But that's the beauty of owning your email list, which is a whole nother topic. Um, and then the, the the free newsletter, you know, that's um, that that's the podcast, and that's just whatever's on my mind that I want to um, interrogate. That's awesome. So this is really interesting. I think this is a great thing to highlight for listeners too. Um, and I don't know, maybe it might be helpful to just link off to the tweet that I did on this because mm -hmm. it's kind of visual. But there's this model that we ultimately created that we call the newsletter engine which <clears throat> shows how you know your core product ties in with different monetization strategies whether it's that free newsletter or low cost high cost at 120 dollars a month 120 right yep correct cool that, first of all that's awesome and you're talking what 1400 bucks a year something like that mm -hmm. that would technically qualify as a back-end product and so what's uh, hopefully helpful about this model is that it shows you, first of all, that you, uh, you can, when you know how the whole business works, you can sort of pick and choose a la carte, which pieces you want to build. Um, in this case, you know, your free newsletter is basically distribution for a backend product. And uh, if you ever wanted to, I mean, you could always like plug a front end product in between those two. Certainly not required, though. the The idea is that that model represents sort of everything that's possible, and then uh, you can you can cherry pick from it. And a lot of companies do, like a lot of big companies do. This is kind of the other the other big point is that any one of these monetization strategies can be a huge huge business. Uh, Nerd Wallet, for example, does something like one hundred and forty million dollars a year, and they're just affiliate links. You know, Bankrate wow. is another one. They do 400 million plus on, a, on affiliate links. So you don't need all of these different types of monetization strategies, but if you know how they work, uh, it can help you identify uh, opportunities when you do want them. And same thing goes for like Morning Brew. Morning Brew is an interesting example. They're, you know, they have... Uh, you know, last time I saw maybe 2.5, maybe 3 million readers. So big as far as free daily newsletters goes. Uh, and they still operate on a free, I think it's primarily ad-driven model. Uh, they have seven free newsletters. So they're basically picking one part of that business engine and really running with it. One of the reasons they're so successful at that is because they've now developed uh, technology behind the scenes that allows them to launch new free newsletters very quickly and effectively. Um, so uh, just another example of how you don't need it all. Right. But if you understand how it works, you're just in a, you're in a much better position, I think, than uh, if you're just kind of shooting in the dark, trying to figure out how to make this whole business go. And I see this a lot too, like with um, newer sub stackers and stuff, they, they try a lot. Um, and you know, part of that might be necessary. Part of it might is it's more likely that uh, it's because with a small audience, it's really hard to make a, a like an income from one of these alone. Like if you have, say, a general business newsletter and twenty thousand readers, it's going to be really hard to monetize that via ads. Now, if you have a niche newsletter, like you said, NBA gambling or um, whatever, like the, one of the examples that I give out all the time is the Ferrari market newsletter, which yes. has about you know, 5,000 subscribers or something like that. And they're doing about 2 million bucks a year in business. You can make money on these super niche audiences, but a small, broad audience, very hard to monetize. So um that model that I talked about just helps like helps you break down other companies to figure out what they're doing. It helps you analyze your own in order to identify where the areas of opportunity are and hopefully makes this whole game a little bit easier. I'd like to see more people following their, their dream for like newsletter publishing, if that's what they're 
that's what they're into. Yeah. And for the listeners, you have a great series of videos on your Twitter feed that go into all of this. And, and for this particular topic that we're talking about, your timeless principle, again, back to timeless principles, it's diversify, right? So you have a free newsletter, you have a low cost newsletter, you have a high cost newsletter, and it's, you know, your income streams, then therefore diversified. And perhaps with your free newsletter, you have affiliate ads. Um, one of the things that you've mentioned in, in one of your Twitter threads is that basically the most important thing that you do with your newsletter, um, with your communications, with your readers, with your subscribers, is build trust. And again, timeless principle. It doesn't matter what the medium is. Um, and this is even beyond trying to necessarily market something or sell something, but just in all areas of life, I think trust is key. My, my academic background is in leadership, educational leadership. That's what my PhD is in. And, you know, if I could just boil everything down to one, one sentence, it's that high-functioning organizations have high levels of trust. And trust is defined as psychological safety. Um, if I share an idea, people aren't going to make fun of me. So can you talk about the idea of trust in your world, in the newsletter world, in, in copywriting and writing and so forth? Yeah, sure. So first of all, I like that definition of psychological safety, because I think this is sort of like a squishy concept that is tough to get your arms around without like a concrete idea of what you're doing. Uh, to offer a little bit more background, um, I'm blanking on who told me this too. So I, I wish I could give them credit because this was not really my idea, but somebody over the last few months made a point of saying, rather than focusing on scaling your audience or growing your audience, focus on growing trust. And if you do that, everything else will take care of itself. And I love that because in for one reason, I'm, I have never felt particularly good at growing an audience. Um, I am good at like, good at talking to individual people. And I just not good at like scaling attention grabbing things. I mean, this kind of harkens back to our entire conversation. So um, trust I can do. So the idea is uh, focus on building trust. A couple of like concrete ways to do that. People have been talking about this more recently too, which I think is, is kind of timely. Um, I think it may have been, uh, uh, oh my gosh, who writes the profile? Maria? Give me one second. I want to get her name right. Polina Marinova. Polina Marinova. Sorry, Polina. I sometimes, for whatever reason, I, I mix her name up with Maria Popova, who writes another great newsletter. I am bad with names. But anyways, um, she had this great tweet recently where she was talking about how trust is basically like consistent action over time, which I think is a really great way of thinking about it. Um, yeah, basically like what do you, what's the promise that you're making to readers and then you just keep fulfilling that and i think one of the really important aspects of that is in order to build trust you need to avoid making promises that you can't keep and a lot of people come out of the gate with these ambitious goals for their media like i'm going to publish a newsletter every day and we're going to do a weekly podcast and i'm going to have you know like all these other things uh, which is possible at some point, but it's a hell of a grind for one person to do. That becomes a problem if you kind of make that promise to your readers and then you can't follow through. So uh, if you're thinking about growing trust, just think about consistency. Like how can I continue to deliver on whatever promise it is that I'm making? Um, that's a good one. And then I like the thing that you said about psychological safety too. In some sense, I think that consistency does offer a form of psychological safety. It's kind of like, I know what I'm gonna get here, um, which I think is important. And the last one that I also think about, and I guess I'm still kind of forming my thoughts on this topic as a whole, but I think it's really important to not, or to, yeah, to be like a fallible human, right? You can't, you can't try to be perfect. Um, and it's tough. It's like, it's scary to admit 
the things that you're not good at or the thing like the areas where you kind of come up short. I wish I had gotten Polina's name right off the bat. I'm literally reading it off the screen because I'm that bad at remembering it. So um, it's scary to admit what you suck at, <laughs> but I think it's important too because people need like people need authenticity. Um, so those are kind of the three things that I think about there. It's consistency, authenticity, and then I, I like what you said. I'm going to kind of work that into it. This concept of like psychological safety. I'm not sure how that plays into it yet, though, for me. Yeah, that, that's fantastic. For psychological safety, you know, that's primarily in an organization um, setting. So in a newsletter setting, it may not be. I think your definition or the definition you reference, consistency over time is perfect in, in the type of newsletter setting. And just to give you one more real world example, give the listeners one more real, real world example, personal example. So with, with my newsletter, Ben Bo Betts, with the NBA Spread Bets, um, it, the last couple of weeks, the my overall percentage is 59%, but the last couple of weeks has been below 59%. So I think for the month of, um, what month are we in? Hey, April, April is 57%. And then like the first week, uh, of this month of May was like went one in three or something. And, um, you know, I, I wrote about it. I said, look, you know, it's just every game's its own discrete event. There's actually no such thing as runs um, when it comes to, to betting and so forth or selecting games. Um, but at the same time, I, I anticipated a bunch of people would unsubscribe and nobody did. And what you're saying now is backing that up because when I started, I said, I, I don't know if this is going to work, you know, just like a mutual fund, past performance is no prediction of future performance, no guarantee of future performance. And a lot of websites and people in this space, you know, it's models holding stacks of money in front of luxury cars, right? And I'm saying, I don't know if this is going to work, might work, it might not, um, but we're, we're going to see. And, and so then when there were when there was a month where it was lower than 59% and then the first week of May when it was one in three, no one unsubscribed because there weren't unmet promises um, that had been made. That's Ethan, a great way of putting it. Ethan, I know you, I know you got to run. This has been great. I uh, hope in the future that we can uh, do this again. And, and um, there's a, a strong possibility that I'll be in Austin for the fall. So if that works out, then uh, hopefully can, can buy you some tacos in person and we can just sit and quote, princess bride to each other for an hour <laughs> sounds very romantic i'm totally down <laughs> all right thank you very much tell everybody where they can find your work please yeah sure uh, well thanks for having me on this was a blast uh if you're interested in some of the stuff we talked about um uh, you can find me on twitter at damn underscore ethan like the swear word um and then uh if you are if you dig business stuff you can check us out at trends just trends.co um that's a pretty cool spot. And I think that's all for me. Yeah, Twitter is kind of the best place. So come say, hey, hey you don't even have to follow me. Just uh, send me a message. <laughs> all right, sir. This has been great. And I'll leave you with this. Have fun storming the castle. <laughs> Inconceivable. All right. Wait all right, sir. <laughs> Thank you. That was my conversation with Ethan Brooks. You can find all of my work at benbo.substack.com. That's benbo.substack.com. Have a great day.